Our scripture reading today will be from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Mark three twenty through 30, this is the word of God. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house." Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Kaylee. All right, so uh, today we are going to consider the famously troubling verse about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Um, I sent uh, Lloyd a text earlier or this week, and I was just like, man, hitting on blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You know, any, any thoughts on it? Because such a tough passage. Lloyd's, if you don't, you need to know to, to reach out to the Lord when you have these tough questions. He's always great with resources. So I want to reach out with this. And he texted back, and I quote, just don't do it. <laughs> Thanks, Lloyd. Um, but uh, it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a troubling passage. Um, this idea, it mentions this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and it says it's an unforgivable sin. And, and, and doesn't that seem to go against everything that we know of the gospel? It, doesn't it just seem natural to say there's no such thing as an unforgivable sin? But then we get here and it says, yeah, there's this thing that won't be forgiven. So it runs contrary to what we know about the gospel. So this is, this is a tough one. And so, so what I want to do is I want to spend um, uh, the beginning part, most of my time, on trying to figure out what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then, and then uh, the, the next two, my, my, my second and third point, have more to do with implications of this. Like what is this, what is this, some things that it's touching on. Like one thing it'll touch on is the idea of losing your salvation. Uh, the other thing is about how we relate to the Spirit. So, um, so let's get into it. So first... What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? So in this passage, Jesus is starting to make some noise in the community, right? Um, people are starting to think that he's, he's crazy. His family thinks that he's out of his mind. And the scribes from Jerusalem say that, that he's, as he's casting out demons, he must be doing this through demons. And, and to this, Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is coming to an end. So Jesus is saying that it makes no sense for Satan to cast out Satan. He's not in the business of doing that. And then he drops the bomb in uh, verse 28 and 30, where he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never 
has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, in order to understand what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we have to look at the context in which Jesus makes this statement. And the context is that Jesus is casting out demons. And the scribes are saying that is the work of demons. Obviously, it's not the work of demons. It's the work of the Spirit. We intuitively know this is the work of the Spirit. But in Matthew chapter 12, we see explicitly that it is the work of the Spirit. So turn to Matthew 12. uh, Look at verse 25 through 28. This is the same situation going on where Jesus is uh, casting out demons and the scribes say it's it's the work of demons. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 25 to 28 says this, Matthew 12, 25 to 28. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God, that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is casting out demons and he's saying it's by the spirit of God. That is why when the scribes say that it's being done by demons, Jesus says that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit because what the Holy Spirit is doing is casting out demons. And the scribes are saying that's the work of demons that are casting out demons, not the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is to glorify and to confirm that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. It's the Spirit's work to cause people to be born again, to come to faith and repentance. And Jesus, through the Spirit, is casting out demons. The Spirit of God is in the business of glorifying Jesus and confirming that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, and leading people to a saving knowledge of that. And the scribes not only rejected the work of of the Spirit, but their hearts were so hardened towards Christ that they said the work that the Spirit was doing through Jesus was the work of demons. So they took the work of the Holy Spirit and they blasphemed the Spirit by claiming it was the work of demons. Now it's bad, right? But what makes that so bad? What makes that the unforgivable sin? And why is that worse than other kinds of blasphemies? And look, it's unforgivable because it demonstrates a willful and stubborn commitment to reject the Holy Spirit's revelation of who Jesus Christ is. It's not unforgivable because it's so bad, because it's so egregious. It isn't isn't because blaspheming the Holy Spirit is worse than murder or adultery. It's unforgivable because it blocks the path to forgiveness. It blocks faith and repentance. In order to find forgiveness, someone must cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin, pointing us to Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. And if they reject that work of the Spirit that's leading them to Christ, then they cannot be forgiven. And the problem is not God's grace or mercy being limited or withheld. The problem is the hardness of heart that prevents them from reaching faith and repentance. There's a, there's a documentary uh, called Behind the Curve. It's about people who believe in the fl- that the earth is flat. 
And, and the leader of this movement is a guy named uh, Mark Sargent. At least he's the leader of the movement in the documentary. Uh, and he believes that the idea of the so-called round earth is a conspiracy. Um, he thinks that uh, the, the pictures from space are fakes. He obviously thinks NASA is, is in on this. They're part of the conspiracy. Uh, and they also believe, a, a large portion of these people believe, that uh, when the, the, the space shuttle, the, whatever, that when it, in the Challenger in the 80s, when it blew up, he thinks all those, all those astronauts that were said to have died on that, they're all still alive. That was just kind of a show, part of the conspiracy. Uh, so they think all this stuff is, is fake. And they see themselves as an oppressed minority who are committed to the truth. And all these other people who believe in the round earth as just sheep going along with the government conspiracy. And no matter what evidence they see for a round earth, they'll just, you know, toss it away or they'll minimize it. And whatever gives them the crazy idea that the earth is flat, they really hone in on that and make a big deal of it. And at the end of the documentary, they, they have this experiment they're going to run. And what they do is they have this, this laser beam that they're able to, to kind of shine from a long distance. And so uh, they, they set it at 17 feet above sea level. And they have some considerable dis distance that's gonna, it's gonna, this laser beam is going to shine. And, and if the earth is flat, it, it'll hit the target at 17 feet above sea level. But if the earth is round, uh, then it's going to be about two feet above the, the target. And so they get it all set up. You know, they're kind of drawing it out in the documentary. The laser's set 17 feet above sea level. And then at some considerable distance, it's another 17 feet above sea level. So it's just right. They shine the laser. And you know what happens? Spoiler alert, the, the earth is round. So it's about two feet off because of the curvature of the earth. Because again, the earth is round. And you know, and, and, and it ends abruptly. And the last word of the, of the flat earther is this. Huh, that's interesting. <laughs> and you just kind of get this idea. That's not going to sell them. <laughs> you know, the, the, the flat earthers, it's not a lack of information, right? It's not that, man, they just need access to education about the, about the roundness of the earth. It's not that they have this stubborn commitment that the earth is flat, right? And so they, they don't just need more information. They have a commitment to it. Similar to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, when a person is committed to unbelief or unrepentance, no matter what the Holy Spirit does in validating who Jesus is, they're just going to write it off. The scriptures, by the Spirit, foretold the life and the work of Jesus. And some will say, no, scriptures are written by man. Probably, probably were tampered with several times. And these things can't be trusted. No matter what the prophecies foretold, no matter what the evidence says. Other thing, Jesus rising from the grave on the third day. This must have been a conspiracy. People don't come back to life from the dead. This didn't happen. The disciples probably stole the body and hid it somewhere. And the scribes, they're seeing Jesus cast out demons. And these scribes, they believe in demons. They believe that they can be cast out. But this doesn't mean that Jesus is the Son of God or the Christ. He's probably got a demon. This is an inside job. He's doing this because he's a demon, has demons kind of working with him. He's working along with demons. And so when someone blasphemes the Holy Spirit, 
They have a wide-eyed and willful rejection of who the Spirit is revealing Jesus Christ to be. Consider Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that, that have been made, so they are without excuse. They're suppressing the truth, things that, that God has made plain to them, things that we can clearly perceived. The truth of God will be suppressed by those who don't know him. Creation can be explained by a big bang. There's a big explosion, and that's what got us to where we are now. The miracles that Jesus performed, maybe either it didn't happen or it's just the stuff of legend. It's just kind of this myth that kind of picked up momentum during a certain time. People during that stage, during that time of, of world history, they believe garbage like that. So it just kind of picked up, became a myth and a legend. It's this commitment to suppressing the truth to denying who the Holy Spirit is clearly revealing Jesus Christ to be. Now, let me say this. If you are one with a tender conscience, if you're one that, that might read a passage about an unforgivable sin and it makes your heart kind of skip, it makes you nervous. Maybe you think, I might have committed this unforgivable sin or maybe I might commit this in the future. Then let me encourage you. If you're worried about maybe committing this sin in the past or in the future, that's a good sign that you haven't done it and won't do it. People who have a tender conscience towards God do not commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They don't have a wide-eyed, willful rejection of the Spirit revealing who Jesus Christ is. This sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is about a hardened heart that refuses to believe the Spirit's testimony about Jesus Christ and suppress the truth about God. This is not about someone taking the Lord's name in vain. And it's not even about someone taking the Holy Spirit's name in vain or thinking or saying a bad thing about the Holy Spirit. This is a stubborn commitment of rejecting the Spirit's, Spirit's evidence of who Jesus is. That is what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Now, in light of this, I want to bring up two other topics that I think this issue introduces. One, the idea about losing our salvation. Can we lose our salvation as Christians? Like I said, many people read this passage and they become afraid either that they have committed this sin, this unforgivable sin, or that they might in the future, uh, and, and they might perhaps lose their salvation. And again, should be encouraged because that tenderness or that sensitivity towards God is a sign that you're not guilty of committing this unforgivable sin. But there might be other things that give those of us with a sensitive conscience and a concern about our salvation. Maybe you've done something that's really bad, genuinely bad, you're really ashamed of. Maybe no one knows it but you. And you think, is this something that Christians do? And look, we've all had unbelievably awful thoughts pass through our minds, right? Shameful things we've never told anything, anyone about. We think, can a person think that 
and be saved and have the Holy Spirit in them. There might be something you've done or you keep doing. You think no real saved Christian would do this. Or maybe you just always feel like you have anger boiling in your soul and it ranges from simmering to exploding. And you think, is this how a Christian should feel and walk through life? Let me encourage you and remind you that our salvation, our being forgiven and being in right standing with God is more about what God is determined to do than what we are determined to do. For example, Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1.6 says this, Paul writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't encourage the the Philippians that they could do it. He didn't say, hey, look, believe in yourself, keep at it, pray every day, never quit. It's not what he said. He said, God is going to bring this thing to completion that he started. Paul was saying that their confidence should rest in God finishing his work. Your salvation is not ultimately your work. Your salvation is ultimately God's work. Another text, John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29. John 10, 27 to 29. Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Listen to this. No one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. In verse 27, Jesus says he gives them eternal life and that no one will snatch them out of his hand. Then he doubles down on it and says no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. You need to understand that we are not the central operators in our salvation. God the Father ordains our salvation. God the Son accomplishes our salvation. And God the Spirit applies our salvation. God the Father, we see in in John 10, 29, is giving God the Son a people. And in the end of all things, in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that God the Son will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Our personal salvation is bigger than us as individuals. It's ultimately something that's happening among the Trinity, it's bigger than us. So we should not be so easily rattled about losing our salvation. It's something that God is doing and determined to do more than something that we are doing or we might be determined to do. Now, let me say one other thing about this. I guess my third point is how should we relate to the Holy Spirit? If you are a Christian, if you have come to see yourself as a sinner in God's sight, truly worthy of his displeasure and his wrath, and your only hope in being reconciled to God is the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you've turned to him in repentance and faith, then you should know that that, 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 that turning to him in repentance and faith, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The kind of turning to Jesus, that, that kind of turning to Jesus is called being born again, and it is uniquely the work of of the Spirit. If you are a Christian, it is not because you made a good decision. I'm fine putting it under the category of a good decision, but that's not ultimately 
why you became a Christian. You ultimately became a Christian because of the work of the Spirit in you. In John chapter 3, 6 and 7, we read this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This, being, this idea of being born again, becoming a Christian, is a work of the Spirit. And we don't just start by the Spirit. We continue by the Spirit. All the Christian life is to be lived by dependence on the Spirit, the same way we depend on the Spirit to be born again. In Galatians 3, Paul rebukes the Galatians, and he says this, Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? So we begin by the Spirit and we continue by the Spirit. Now, in a, in a less serious way than blaspheming the Spirit, one thing that we need to know is that we can grieve the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 4.30, we read about grieving the Spirit of God. We can plow forward past the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And while we don't lose our salvation in doing this, we do lose a lot of progress and joy in the faith. We numb ourselves to the Spirit of God, and that grieves the Spirit. I think I've talked about this before. There was a show um, by the illusionist Darren Brown. And, and in it, uh, you know, an, an illusionist and a mentalist, they have this, these uh, shows where they'll try to kind of manipulate people's minds into thinking and doing things. Well, he had this crazy idea, and, and the question he asked was, can, can we get inside someone's mind enough, a, a normal person's mind enough, to bring them to the point where they would commit murder? That's what the show's about. And you know what? He was successful. Now, you should know, no one died. Uh, it was an issue where they had to push someone off a building, but they, they, they remained alive. Well, it wasn't that crazy, but what the, what the whole process was about was how do we bring a person to the point where they would commit murder? And here's what's interesting. It, it all kind of began with, with this first step. And the first step, they needed them to do something small. And they had a series of events they needed them to do, a, a series of, of moral compromises to bring them to the point where they would actually push someone off a building so that they would die with the intention of killing that person. And you know what the first thing was? So he's, he's, he's wanting to get them to commit, commit murder. The first thing they were doing, they were hosting an event and they had appetizers out. And there was two appetizers. They look exactly the same. Um, they were real small, just little bite-sized things. Uh, they were supposed to have uh, one, one tray was supposed to be vegetarian and the other wasn't. And they forgot the vegetarian tray, they told them. And so, hey, we just need you to put this sign, vegetarian, in front of this one. It's not vegetarian, but it's no big deal. It's not that much. And just put it there. And so anyway, just about everybody did that. Some didn't. And the ones who didn't, Darren Brown said, it's over. If we can't get them to do that, then we're not going to be able to get them to do the second, the third, the fourth, the 20th thing, which is to have them to commit murder. When they stop there, this whole project's pretty much over. And so what we need to understand 
is that these little things we do that don't matter, they actually do. I mean, you can think of these things, these little compromises you may be made today or this weekend. There's something you've done recently that, that you've grieved the spirit, I'm sure. And look, th- these little tiny things, do they matter? Well, on one sense, no. It really doesn't matter. No harm, no foul, right? No one gets hurt by that thing you did. Probably no one knows about it. Nothing happened, right? And so you can look back on that situation, that small compromise you made, and you could say there was really no, no consequence. And you might be kind of right. But you know what did happen? It was like just giving a, a, a shot of Novocaine to, to your heart. A little numbness went in. The conviction, we can numb out the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We've all done this to some degree. You've done something where you had that, that check. Don't do it. And you told yourself it doesn't really matter. And here's the thing. Let me just introduce a new category because you're probably going to have this today or tomorrow. Something's going to happen. You're going to have that check in the Holy Spirit that's saying, don't do this thing. You're going to think it doesn't matter. It'll be, there'll be no consequences to this. You might be kind of right, but where you'll be wrong is that it will numb your soul to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that has terrible consequences because that begins to add on more and more and more. So while Christians might not be able to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, endangering the life to come, we can definitely grieve the Spirit and bring a whole lot of misery into our lives now. So we should be sensitive to the Spirit of God in our lives the same way we were sensitive to the Spirit when we came to Christ to begin with. And we should continue to live in step with the Spirit. So may God help us to see the excellencies of Christ in the work of the Spirit. And may we be confident that He will finish the work that He began in us, not because we're good enough or committed enough, but because He has accomplished it, He has ordained it, He has accomplished it, and He has applied it. It is by grace and grace alone. May we stand in that, and may that move us towards Him with great joy and thankfulness in our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we read this verse and we see the Spirit at work. You've worked throughout the centuries in bringing people to yourself. And we thank you for how you've brought us to see the Son of God, the Christ, to be our Savior. We pray that in the same way we were sensitive to the Spirit, to come to you in the first place, that we would continue to walk in step with the Spirit, moment by moment and day by day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we love you for all that you are and all that you've done by your Spirit in and through us. In Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen.